Season 4, Episode 9 of the Birdie Knife Podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. Keep birds looking great and full of life this winter with Westerman's new Wild Bird Winter Mix. Wild birds need a good source of fat and energy to survive the cold winter months. This winter mix has been especially created to provide them with a source of nutrition and energy when natural food sources are scarce. Available at various pet and lifestyle retailers across South Africa, online and in-store. Westermans, for the love of birds. So over this last week, I've been enjoying the taste of Sunbird Superior Rooibos Char. So if I'll be honest with you, I'm not a big fan of Rooibos tea, but this tea is becoming one of my favorite, favorite things to drink. Sunbird Rooibos Char is an aromatic blend of naturally sweet rooibos and their own blend of masala chai spices. It brews up a fresh, full-bodied cup, combining the best of African and Indian-style flavors. And the good news is, we've just received a whole lot of stock of Sunbird Rooibos tea. So whether it's chai tea, or one of the other flavors that you enjoy, be sure to order yours today from the Birding Life's online store. They are not just ordinary boxes, but they're also boxes that would make great gifts. So order today to avoid disappointment. So let's dig into this week's episode of the Birding Life podcast. So I'm really excited today with the guests that I've got. And the reason is when I was starting off birding, I did some courses with Monty Brett and I had an opportunity to learn from some really fantastic birders. And one of the birders was the guest that I've got today. So I'm really excited today to welcome Duncan McKenzie to the Birding Life podcast. Hi Adam, thanks for having me on. So this is actually the second time you've been on the podcast, but the last time we didn't really get into your story that much. So I'm excited today to learn a little bit more about you and about your birding journey. Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, our first trip, uh, our first uh, journey was through Birding Big Day. So um, yeah, let's let's do some other stuff today. Let's start firstly with the big news in South African birding circles. A wood warbler showed up in Palabora. This is the first record for the country. So how far out of range is this species? Yeah, it's an interesting record. It's a bird that breeds up in Europe, sort of temperate Europe, and it, it overwinters in tropical Central and West Africa um, from about, I guess, Sierra Leone and then across to Uganda and then and the DRC. So it's not a bird that comes even close to, to us. Um, I think in terms of kilometers, I'm not sure, but sort of central to northern DRCs where is the, is the southerly distribution of its overwintering grounds. So I guess we're at least two to three or maybe even four, yeah, three or 4,000 kilometers further south uh, of, its, of its core, of its overwintering range. But obviously... This bird has has decided that uh, it would rather overwinter elsewhere. You know, as we're preparing for this episode, you know, if we were to talk about the subject of twitching, there's a whole lot of differing opinions of it. There's people that think twitching is amazing and will travel really far because they've got a lot of money and can afford the petrol. I can't at the moment. But there's the other side of it, which people are more you know, a bit more conservative in the approach to birding. But, you know, I was thinking about it this morning. You know, I thought the one thing that twitching does provide, it does provide a little bit more exposure to birding. I remember that bird that showed up, that shearwater. You know, it was, they were writing about it in some of the newspapers. And I think that's the one cool part about twitching is when some, one of these super rare birds shows up, 
sometimes the news spreads a bit further, which I think does actually provide us with opportunities to speak about more important conservation matters around birds. It's it's interesting because in terms of, of um, conservation and in terms of science, the fact that a wood warbler has pitched up here is completely irrelevant. But in terms of birding and people that keep lists and, you know, to be really honest, in terms of just driving the local economy, uh, even non-birders will go and have a look because it's a hype. So I remember the lesser whitethroat in Marloth Park last year. Even non-birders went to have a look because the local the local media got involved, the local press, and and people just got caught up in in this frenzy of this very drab and very small little bird that pitched up, and it created a lot of awareness for birding, but also just think of all the car rentals and flats and and accommodation and food and and fuel and all that. So, uh, in in the greater scheme of things, it's inconsequential, but for for local economy and for awareness for birding, fantastic. It's just a pity it didn't rock up a little bit closer to me, but uh, otherwise, yeah, it's good for Palaboa. So, yeah, when when I was thinking about this whole thing, you know, a lot of times people go and tick a bird off, but there's not maybe the pursuit of a deeper understanding of that bird, and there's a lot we can talk about the bird, but I don't want to use use this whole episode to talk about a wood warbler. But, you know, in a broader sense, what are some of the factors that cause birds to show up so far out of range? There's a few factors. I think in this particular case, it's a classic example of what is termed reverse migration. A bird that would have migrated, um, let's say, in a, in a northerly direction would get confused somehow. This could be, I guess, uh, due to poor health or, or other factors. The bird then migrates 180 degrees the other direction. So it's the opposite direction, which is why they call it reversed migration. So I'm sure this happens a lot with birds. We're a big country and we have few birders, so um, we don't pick them up all the time. But this this appears to be a classic case of of a bird that has rever- uh, uh, reversed its migration route, landed up in 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 the low felt, and just happened to be picked up by a birder who got good photographs and, and obviously spread the news. And this is the same that happened last year with that with the lesser whitethroat that rocked up uh, in Marloth Park. Again, not a bird that normally occurs anywhere near South Africa, but it just so happened that a really good birder was just happened to find it and and reported it. And yeah, I, I guess hundreds of people went to to look at that. And I'm sure hundreds of people will, will go and have a look at this at this wood warbler. I must be honest with you, if I'd seen this wood warbler and, you know, taken a photo of it, I probably would have not even known what the bird was. Uh, so it was really awesome that the person who saw it was able to identify it and to pick out that it was something something special. Yeah, or maybe not ident- even identified, but at least know, hang on, it looks a lot like a, a willow warbler, which is really common here in summer, but it's the wrong season. And they, even if they didn't know, at least they could have sent the photographs to somebody and, and they could have confirm the identity and I believe the photographs have been sent to various um, northern hemisphere uh, bird experts and they all agree but it looks very similar to a willow warbler which we commonly get in the low felt in summer. So we're going to dig a little bit more into your story and for those that that know you would know that you're a very experienced birder and just as I learned a little bit more about your story I saw that you started birding at the age of 10 so tell us a little bit about your journey as a birder. My folks used to visit game reserves uh, most holidays. They were not birders themselves, 
and obviously I got to enjoy the the whole game reserve thing. And I used to make notes, lots of notes. How many lines we saw on what day and, and what they were doing and how many Impala in this herd. And I was just a copious note maker. And I, as a teenager, as a late teens, I, I found some of my old notes from a, from when I was a kid. And when I was about 10, I, I started, I, I saw in my notebooks that when I was 10, I started writing down bird names. But but not species names, just sort of stork and and fourteen and eagle and whatever and and vulture, and then it it grew from there. My folks bought me a, a I think a nineteen eighty seven Newman's Field Guide and and the eighty five I think it was the eighty five Roberts Handbook, and it was just self taught uh, throughout high school. I remember I made my first sort of bird list at aged fifteen. It was about 200 or so. And then by, by 18, I was completely, totally, well, say by, by age 17, hooked on birds, um, but not in a, an area or in a situation where I had any other birders around me. I just grabbed whoever was the closest and buddy at a boarding school, and we just went to organized outings to Mkuzi Game Reserve and Giants Castle and Wiener Nature Reserve. So that's pretty much, it was just my own interest that somehow developed. And yeah, just it just ran from there, really. And were you based in KZN at that time? Because the reserves you were speaking about are KZN reserves. Very much so. I grew up in northern Zululand um, on a farm between Babananga and Freyd, and then went to boarding school down in Moorover. And yeah, a lot of the birding was done in Zululand and and the Midlands. And as a as a teen, I joined the Natal Midlands Bird Club. I'm not quite sure what they're called now, but Kruger was a Kruger Park was a was an annual destination where I, I really got stuck into the birds. Yeah, Zuland's definitely not a bad place to start birding. You know, it's, obviously we know it's one of the best birding destinations in South Africa. Correct, and and what a place to to sort of learn birds. Ndumo and Cozy Bay and Itala, Ishawi and you know Utinzini Richards Bay. So those were really good areas to to a, a very wide diversity of birds. So the exposure was was fantastic. And and was there any like specific bird you know that you I know you spoke about the birds you wrote about and it almost sounds like it was this progressive journey. But were, are there any birds that when you're younger that just stick out that were like that was just something that that sticks in my memory as something that was really special. I think as an only kid growing up on a farm, you had to kind of find your own things to do. So I used to, I, my, my dad used to drop me off on the neighbor's property and I used to just walk home, climb the hills and dig through thorns and, and just arrive home again. So there, there were quite a few sightings. There were a few birds that I found that were new records for the area. And then, of course, I did discover a new species of bird. Uh, I, th- I think I was probably in my last year of school, I discovered a new, a new, brand new species of bird, which really sticks in my mind. Um, I discovered about a week or so after that, that it was a female black cuckoo shrike. Uh, I had never encountered a beast that looked anything like it before. And I was just convinced I'd found a new species. So I was obviously a bit disappointed a week later when I actually found the illustration in the field guide. So that one sticks out, I guess. Uh, but th- there were so many, uh, Suti falcon in Ndumo, Game reserve as a kid uh, was was great, and and uh, rosy throated longclaw. I remember. I think my number four hundred bird was a broadbilled roller. So so there were there were just so many. I was I was quite obsessed. So I, th- I think there were too many to 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 highlight them. So you've spoken about the books. You know your folks got you those two books in those Roberts books in the eighties, and 
I want to ask you a question. If you were to gift a birder with a book, it doesn't have to even be a birding book. What would be the book you'd give them and why? I think a field guide is important because it'll help somebody identify a bird they're looking at. And uh, of the current field guides, we, we have remarkably amazing field guides in South Africa. That they're, all, they're all amazing, all fantastic. They're all world-class. But I think the one, if I had to personally give a field guide to somebody, I'd probably give them the Roberts Field Guide. It's very comprehensive and the illustrations are fantastic. But um, any, I'd, I'd give anybody, I have a pile of field guides on my desk that I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm giving away at the moment. So that's what I would do. I'd give somebody a field guide. You're lucky enough to have a job that allows you to bird all over Africa. So tell us a little bit about what you do. I'm a consulting terrestrial ecologist, formerly a bird guide, a specialist bird guide, and then initially a conservationist. I worked in, for conservation organizations, then specialist bird guide, and then turned my focus more on, on consulting. So I consult for, well, for whoever, but in South Africa with our legislation, we require environmental authorization for any developments. So if you want to build a, a game lodge or a road or a dam, or plant an orchard of macadamias, or build a power line. You need authorization from from government, and I'm the one of the cogs in the environmental impact assessment process. So one, the one cog that I cover, or I actually cover two. One is terrestrial fauna, which are the vertebrates, and then I also cover flora. So I'm also I wear two caps. I'm also a botanist, and uh, I cover those two components as required by law for uh, for any developments uh, before approval for a development. So I have to assess the sensitivity of the site for vertebrates and for flora. But in other countries where such legislation is not present, so other African countries, the, the financing of those projects from uh, global finances, they require biodiversity surveys. So that's when I'll jump in. As I'll just cover the, the biodiversity component for application for financing to start a mine or, or whatever project. So this might be quite a, a question for another podcast another day, but let me let me ask for the short answer. You know, how do you, as someone who's involved in this field, how do we we balance the the two sides? You know, the side between development because there's this need for development in the country for the economy to kickstart and the, the economy to grow. How do we balance development? and conservation how do those how do those two look together it's a very good question and uh, yes it is probably the topic for an entire podcast but in essence anybody in south africa has the right to develop they don't necessarily have the right to develop anywhere so what what i will do and my fellow scientists that consult uh, so there'll be aquatics and there'll be historians and and all that what we do is we we will guide and assist the process in terms of which areas are more sensitive and which are less. So we will very, very rarely actually stop a project. It, it, is, it happens. It, it does happen, but it's, it's not common for that to happen. So we, we understand the need for, to drive the economy, but we also know what could be lost. So it is a fine balance and do our best to, to get that balance right. So your work allows you to travel to many African countries and you know from your experience in these countries what do you feel are the most the most important things that countries need to do if they wish to grow the AV tourism sector of tourism AV tourism is quite a big deal in Africa we have 
we have a lot of species in Africa. Off the top of my head, I think we have around about two and a half thousand species. So world birders have to come to Africa. There are obviously African countries that are well birded by foreign visitors and local visitors. And I mean, South Africa, Namibia, Botswana definitely are included in that category. Kenya, Uganda, but um, and formerly, I mean, Cameroon, Gabon, but because of political instability and and just poverty and lack of infrastructure many african countries are are not on the radar of 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 world birders and i mean i think of countries like mali which i mean there was a coup recently and they've got military regime we were in mali when the sort of the forces came down from the north and the french sent fighter jets and were bombing and it was it was crazy but it doesn't help their their, their tourism uh, never mind av tourism but even tourism so you need good infrastructure you need semi-stable uh, economy politics places where tourists will feel safe birders are quite adventurous they're like fishermen i always say that if a new country opens up the first two people that will go in are, are the fishermen and the birders fishermen to catch the first fish and the birders to tick the first birds so birders are intrepid they are they do explore but there are there are some unfortunately several well quite a few countries in Africa that are just too unstable for to allow for the development of tourism at the moment. Interesting. I had a chat to someone from Malawi, and you know, if you do a bit of you know, for people that are know about the birds of Africa, Malawi only has one truly endemic species, so it's it's not the most sought after in terms of species. A lot of the species you can get in other African countries, but the one thing that I think made Malawi so attractive was the fact that it's one of the f- one of the few African countries where there hasn't been big political upheaval in that. And I, and I think that, like you were saying, it's a really, really important factor. I mean, you we want to see birds, but we want to also come out alive so we can tick the next bird. Well, exactly. And, and Malawi is a good example. It's It doesn't have Africa's biggest bird list. As you said, it doesn't have this big list of, of endemics. But it's a and and there's also not much habitat left. Uh, much of Malawi is is, de- is degraded. Um, the infrastructure is not always the best, but the birding is wonderful. Um, and especially when you go north to Nika Plateau, the birding is 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 world class. And 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 certainly places like Liwandi as well. It's got it. It's just that it doesn't see the big numbers of of birders. F- to countries with a higher number of endemics, like you just said. So, I mean, Ethiopia and South Africa are the two African countries with the most endemic bird species, and you will see how many tourists will go to those and pick up many of the other common species that they could have picked up anywhere in Africa as well. You know, the one thing I saw about Malawi was they they were speaking about the fact that although a lot of the birds were not could be seen in other countries, the accessibility, they said, was that they were a lot more accessible in Malawi. So I think it's, you know, we speak about those factors that, you know, make birding important. I would think it would be stuff like your safety, your the bird list is important, the endemic species, um, and I think also the accessibility. You know, it's great to say, oh, I've got these these birds, but if you can't get to them, it doesn't really help that much. And I think it's developing all those facets together. And, and you know, also I think what BirdLife South Africa has done really well in South Africa is, you know, growing these these local guides, which has been which has been huge. So it's economic empowerment, but at the same time. You're also creating accessibility for tourists to actually be able to see those birds. Exactly, local guides are 
operating on a, on a local level, and they're going to be a fraction of the costs of, of sort of, let me call them more international guides, because they, they have less overheads, they don't have company fees and all that sort of stuff. And most importantly, they know exactly where the birds are. So there are many, I mean, even Gambia, which is this tiny little country in, in, in surrounded by Senegal, you can you can just arrive. Well, I'm not sure what it's like right now, but I know in the past you could just arrive at a hotel or anywhere just on the way to a hotel somewhere on the coast, and there would be a little stand, bird guides, and you can stop there. There'd be three or four very good birders, and you can just negotiate a fee, and then like literally the next morning, you'll get a taxi that'll pick you up, and the guide will meet you at 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 the bird spot, Abuko Forest Reserve or whatever, and and they guide you, and and then you pay them, and and they 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 friendly, they're professional, and they completely random. They just sort of stand on the side of the road and wait for for birders to come past. So it's it's critical, and and, and it's sort of part of the of the infrastructure of a, of a country's facilities for avian tourism so certainly with within south africa with bird life and private companies we, we we kind of tick all the boxes here in this country which is why we get so many birding guests in this country the birding life podcast is proud to be associated with sarovsky optic one of the world's leading producers of binoculars binoculars and spotting scopes as well as the bird lasser bird logging app spot plot Play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. So, totally off topic now, you've traveled all over widely in Africa. You know, if you were able to visit any birding destination in the world, where would it be and why? I know this is always a difficult question because there's a whole lot of places, but what, what are a couple of places that stand out there? If you could go anywhere in the world, budget was not an option, where would you go? I think, I think within Africa... I would love to go and spend good time in, in Ethiopia, in the Highlands and, and Uganda as well. But globally, it's a really, it's a tough one because there's certain birds that I'd like to see, but then there's also countries that have got vast numbers of birds. So I think if I had to be pressed for an answer, I'd probably say Papua New Guinea to go and look for the, um, the birds of paradise. Yeah, I was actually quite surprised. I, I, one of someone from someone that I know actually went on holiday to Ecuador, and I was actually amazed. I didn't know much about the birding, but Ecuador is this fantastic birding destination, and I was like absolutely blown away with what they what they actually offer birders. Ecuador is insane. I think we spent five weeks between four and five weeks in Ecuador consecutively, and we saw five hundred species of birds, and that's with with very few guides. You climb on a bus, you, you go, you ask the driver to stop, and you get off and you bird, and then you, then you catch the next bus and you carry on. It's incredible. Ecuador is, of all the countries I've been to, it's probably the easiest to bird in. So my, my dream birding destination is probably very different to a lot of other people's. I've, is I'd, I'd love to go to the Shetland Islands. It's absolutely, absolutely fantastic. You know, the seabirds and that, it's, it's insane. They are good. I haven't quite been there. I've been to the neighboring islands, the Orkney Islands, which is just south of the of the Shetlands, a little bit closer to the mainland of Scotland. And even on the on the boat trip out to the islands, you see razorbills and puffins and guillemots and Manx shearwaters and European storm petrels and and the like. And it, it is it is really it is good birding. Not many species, but it it certainly is good birding. I mentioned earlier about watching the Monty Brett course and how you had an impact on my life as a birder. And honestly, 
if it were not for that course, not for your influence you had in my life, the Birding Life podcast would not even exist. So though you've impacted many birders with your experience and your passion for birds, but who have been some people that have impacted your life as a birder and shaped your approach for your time in the field? Unfortunately, I, in my formative years, I did it the hard way. I did it I did a self-taught, uh, which is the hard way. If anybody's listening, don't do the self-taught way. Get involved with the bird club. Get involved. Find a friend who's a birder and 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 ask them to take you out and stuff. So th- that's the way the way to do it. I did it the hard way. I wouldn't recommend it. I did not have any sort of mentors or fellow birders up until I think I was in matric uh, when I met Dr. David Johnson, who really encouraged me uh, to bird. Um, but then. Once I'd left school, I think in my first year out of school, I met Hugh Chittenden and Glenn Holland, who are both based in Ishawi, and I got really involved with with projects with them. And then Peter Lawson, uh, I think I guided for him that same year that I left school. I was eighteen or so, uh, and Peter really kept up with correspondence and he and he got me going. But then as an adult, my long time colleague, birding colleague and, and, and uh, ecological colleague, Warren McClellan. We spent many hours birding all over Africa together on projects. And I learned a lot from him in, just in terms of um, methodology and and how to approach uh, birds scientifically, but also just spent an incredibly uh, sort of many hours in the field just enjoying birds together. So one of the things that you're already passionate about is the SABAP2 project, and you've been involved in this project since August 2007, and you have submitted over 4,300 cards since then. So firstly, for those who don't know what atlasing is, can you give a brief, a brief description of what it is? Yes, sure. It's a citizen science project whereby we're collecting data. Uh, so this is spatial and temporal data of birds. In many African countries, it's not restricted to Southern Africa, but but let's for now let's just look at a, at a more local perspective. We're collecting spatial and temporal data for birds, which will help for a variety of applications. For example, uh, updating the distribution maps of field guides. The data will go into the handbooks, so handbooks of Bird of the World, uh, Robert's handbook, Robert's Birds of Southern Africa. Um, the maps are used. The maps that are produced for the data are also used to create apps, birding apps, and then more importantly, the data are used for updating um, the conservation assessment of birds. So, what we would term the red data book, the book that describes how threatened or, or perhaps near threatened birds are. So, a lot of that is based on actual facts and not thumbsucks as they may have been done many years ago. We have hard data which we can use to deduce whether or not birds are shrinking in range, so they're losing they're losing habitat, losing territory, and secondly, whether they are found less frequently. So in other words, the reporting rate is lower than it was previously. So it's a it's a it's a fascinating project and what's really made it great for for the public that are involved so no one gets paid to go atlasing it's 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 a volunteer project you go out birding you collect a list you compile a list of birds that you see using a third-party application called bird lasser 
that data then gets sent down to the Percy Fitzpatrick Institute of African Ornithology, which is at the University of Cape Town, which is where the data are stored. And what's really great is that the data are linked to a live website. And we have a very competent web curator called Michael Brooks, who has developed this fantastic website where the data that you have submitted can be viewed online matter of an hour or so after you submit it. And maps are not static maps, they're fluid maps, they, they change as bird distributions change over time, these maps change. And we can compare year on year now, for, since the project's inception in 2007, we can compare the data and many scientific articles and papers have been produced using this data, including some on climate change that have actually proven that certain birds are departing Africa for Europe later or earlier than they would normally have done so because of this data. So it's birding with a purpose. It's it's contributing to the world's knowledge of our birds, and it doesn't cost you anything more than what you would already have spent on your birding while you're out there. You know, this is another one of those broad questions, and uh, and I've got my own answer to this, but what excites you about atlasing? Why do you atlas? Well, firstly, due to my work, I get to atlas during work, uh, which is great because while I'm out there conducting the biodiversity surveys, like many others in my in my sort of sphere, my friends, my fellow birders, and and fellow ecologists that are doing this, we're all collecting this data while we're working. I think of of guides. Um, Peter Lawson used to to Atlas when he used to guide, and many still do. So collecting the data and then actually submitting it and being involved in in a project that is of this magnitude and importance, uh, especially for a sort of sub-regional perspective where we have more or a lot of birders contributing to the project. But also I know that the data I'm collecting and submitting I will also use in the future for the next project that I have in that particular area. So as I mentioned earlier, the data are available online on a live website. So I use the data when I'm writing up my reports. So as, as a member of, of the public, without even participating in the project, you have access to all this data. So you can query the website, you can run queries on the website on very small areas of land, about 77 square kilometers, uh, which we call a pentad, which is about five minutes, well, is, it is five minutes by five minutes in size, which equates to about 77 square kilometers, um, you can you can extract the data for for that area, and you can sort birds on reporting rate. You can see what are the most common birds, uh, what are the least common birds, the vagrants. So this is the data that I actually use in in every one of my in my uh, my reports because I need to justify why the site is important for a particular bird. And if I look at the reporting rate in that area is very high, I can say the likelihood of occurrence is very high. Whereas if there's only one record and there are 400 lists that have been submitted, then I know that the likelihood of that bird pitching up is very low. And so I will justify each bird in terms of the, the influence of the particular project on that particular species. So it's fun. It's a fun website. There's lots of fun things you can do. 
but it's also incredibly important for people like myself and other ecologists and ornithologists that are doing what I do to extract the data to use in our scientific reports. One of the things that kind of frustrates frustrates me at times is that it's it's what probably one of the those websites that lots and lots of birders use. But I'll be very interested to know, based on the percentage of people that use the website, how many people are actually you know, submitting data that can be used on the website also. And, you know, it's, you know, you're speaking about why you love atlasing. And I think it's the same reason I love atlasing. You know, every time I submit a card, every time I log a bird and submit it through to SABAP, I know that I'm making a small difference. You know, I might not be able to give millions to conservation, but just through my birding and going out, like you said, and doing what I'm doing anyway, I'm actually able to make a small difference to conservation. I agree, except I think you can substitute the word small for significant. Because if you atlas regularly, even if it's for one pentad, so let's say the home, your hometown, if you're contributing data on a monthly basis over a period of years, that's not a small significance. That is a high significance. So I think individuals can make a huge difference. And and I find that quite fascinating, that if you find one atlas on a remote town somewhere in the Karua or in the Haarfeld, but that atlas is dedicated, 90% of the data from that whole area is going to be from that one, one person's efforts. And the project needs people like that. I think in the bigger cities, there are more atlases. Maybe the individual contributions are less. But And also people go on holiday, sometimes to remote areas where the, the coverage is really poor. I think people can make a huge contribution or a huge significance and Certainly, we can compare, as I mentioned, we can compare data now to 10 years ago. And we can track the changes, not only in the reporting rates, but also in distribution. So we can see how are birds moving? Are they fluctuating in terms of reporting rate and and distribution? And it's almost limitless, the number of studies that can be done using the, the data that people are collecting. As you said, they're out in any case. You're out birding in any case. You're still photographing birds. You're still getting lifers. You're still seeing new areas. And all you're doing is you're just creating a list on your mobile phone and you're just submitting those birds to to the project. So everybody can make a big contribution. And I don't know what impact the rising petrol price is actually having on the amount of cards that are being submitted, but I can imagine there is some sort of impact. So I think the fact that for individual atlases to maybe spread as much or do do as much atlasing as they did before might be more difficult because of the rising cost of petrol. It becomes more and more important that more and more people are getting on atlasing so that those cards are still being submitted. Yeah, that's affecting me. I I was going to drive to Kruger National Park tomorrow with my family and spend the night nearby and atlas three or four or five pentads perhaps. But because of the fuel price increase, all our roads around and Nelspoort have been blocked for the whole day, literally. And they probably will tomorrow. The trucks have been parked over the road and, 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 and taxis are blocking the road. So, And they're, they're just objecting to the cost of, of fuel price. I get that. But it's, 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 it's now prevented me and everybody else that was going to go to the park or travel around in this week. It's affecting us. But it doesn't stop me from burning my own pentad. So as the fuel price has increased, I've traveled less, yes. But I've also then conversely focused more on my home pentad. And I've, I've submitted more cards for this pentad that I live in um, in the last two, year, or three, two or three years, perhaps than the previous six years. So yes, the petrol price, it is having an increase. It is unfortunate. It is out of our control, though. 
unfortunately. Yeah, and I think that is what, you know, myself also, I've done doing almost doing a local challenges here, and I think it's really changed my approach to birding. But it's, you know, I've, I haven't seen it as a negative thing. I've seen it as a positive thing and set my own little personal challenges. So we're going to end this interview here. And the reason for that is um, anyone's listening, I know I could have chatted to Duncan for another half an hour. It's been absolutely fascinating, but load shedding is about to hit. So for South African listeners, you know, we're talking about, but Duncan, it's been so awesome to chat to you. And I'm um, look this, I, I, I don't believe this will be the last chat. There's so much more I want to chat to you about. So I really want to say thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome. Adam, it's a pleasure. And um, I'm very happy to do another one. It's, it's important what you're doing. We appreciate it. And yeah, good luck for, for the rest that are coming up. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Please take some time to check out the other resources that we have on our website. If you have any questions or comments, please drop us an email on info at All relevant links from the episode can be found in the notes to the show. Until next time, be blessed and happy birding.